I can't go to the same bars. I, I got no fish tales to tell. Like, you know, oh, I pulled up this big piece, piece of kelp today, right? And I, I get beat up, right? But it is, I really believe, you know, the crop of the, of the future. It's the future that makes sense. And as fishermen, I mean, our strategy has always been one of diversification. The trouble with climate change and environmental issues is they've been framed as like birds, bees, and bears. And it's a kitchen table issue. It's about healthcare, housing, like how we're gonna make a living and climate change and is gonna affect all of that. And I saw that in the cod fishery. And that's when I learned that there are gonna be no jobs on a dead planet. Welcome to the Stories for Action podcast where we speak with folks taking bold actions for a thriving planet. Our aim is to bridge divides and provide calls to action to help you find your role for positive impact. I'm your host, Laura Tomov. As humans, we truly depend on the ocean. Covering 70% of our planet, it feeds us, provides most of the oxygen we breathe, creates jobs, and absorbs a great deal of the planet's warming and carbon dioxide. 90% of warming since the 70s, to be exact. In short, healthy oceans make this planet livable. Oceans are under pressure, which in turn puts a great deal of pressure on fishing communities, which rely on the health of the oceans for sustenance and to make a living. Depleted fisheries, due to global demands and efficient methods of commercial fishing, is only part of those pressures. Fishermen around the world are seeing the dramatic effects on ocean life due to climate change. Warming waters are throwing off migration and reproductive abilities of fish and causing bleaching of coral, which are a key habitat for ocean life. Ocean acidification, caused by the ocean absorbing an increased amount of carbon dioxide, affects the water's chemistry, creating a myriad of negative effects, one of which is the inability of shellfish to properly form a shell. Crab fishermen on the West Coast know this reality well and have been experiencing heavy hits due to acidification. What if there was something that could benefit the health of the ocean, create fish habitat, decrease acidification, combat climate change, and feed humans? Well, nature already does it best with the growth of seaweed. Regenerative ocean farming is encouraging this process, growing a mix of seaweed and shellfish in the open ocean, and if done right, creates jobs that can bring new life to coastal communities. Bren Smith is a former commercial fisherman who saw the writing on the wall. Currently based in Connecticut, Bren founded Green Wave, an organization which helps fishermen along all American coastlines and now internationally become ocean farmers. As a driver of this practice of regenerative ocean farming, Bren was named one of Rolling Stone Magazine's 25 People Shaping the Future and featured in Time Magazine's Best Inventions of 2017. His book, Eat Like a Fish, My Adventures Farming the Ocean to Fight Climate Change, is a James Beard Award winner. Bren speaks with us about getting creative with our approach to climate solutions and job creation and finding ways to benefit life in the oceans and coastal communities. You know, I was born in Newfoundland, Canada, a little fishing village uh, on the easternmost point of North America. And it was what we think of as just like an idyllic artisanal fishery. I grew up next to a uh, fisherman's co-op. All the houses were painted like uh, reds, greens, orange, oranges with leftover boat paint. And, you know, my heroes were fishermen. That's what I want. I didn't want to be an astronaut. Uh, what I wanted to do was fish. And, you know, as I look back on why, I think it was that 
I'd see them go out over the horizon and they own their own boats. They didn't have bosses, self-directed lives. Uh, they succeeded and failed on their own terms and they were feeding their community. Like these were jobs that had meaning and they're jobs that people write and sing songs about for generations, right? And we think of those jobs, the coal workers, the steel workers, the farmers, the fishermen, like those are the jobs that all have always like filled the spirit of, uh, of, of America. And I wanted one of those, right? And so I, I dropped out of high school when I was 14 and headed out to sea and fished the globe. Um, started out in Lynn and Gloucester down the East Coast, you know, fished lobster, tuna, uh, was up in Alaska in the Bering Sea, fishing cod and crab. And, it, you know, best job of my life. And quite honestly, I still miss it, right? you know, as I've moved into transition. The trouble was, was, you know, we got too good at what we do. This is one of the problems with humans. Like, you know, we keep, we keep inventing, we keep creating new things, and we get more and more efficient. And so we got great at catching and killing fish and chasing, and it ended up, you know, being a scenario where we're chasing fewer and fewer fish further and further out to sea. And the wake-up call for me was I heard while I was on the Bering Sea that the cod stocks crashed back home in Newfoundland. And I headed back to Newfoundland, and 35,000 people were thrown out of work overnight. It was the biggest layoff in Canadian history at the uh, time. And, um, you know, it's amazing to watch a culture built up over hundreds of years, an economy built up over hundreds of years, and then be decimated and disappear overnight. Right, and the fishermen just were walking the streets, hungry ghosts, like no idea what to do with themselves. So, and that's when I learned that there are going to be no jobs on a dead planet. Right, the trouble with climate change, and environmental issues, is they've been framed as like birds, bees, and bears. Right, of saving those, and it's a kitchen table issue. It's about healthcare, housing, like how we're going to make a living, and climate change, and is going to affect all of that. And I saw that in the cod fishery. That was about overfishing, but we lost our economic security and our cultural worth at that moment. So I think that was the transition. I didn't know where I was going. I didn't have the language for it. I just knew that if I was going to die on my boat one day, which was my goal, um, you know, that's the metric of success. I was going to have to figure out a new relationship with the ocean. And fishermen know that reality all too well. But for listeners who may not know this about the seafood supply chain, what are the realities of what fishermen are facing right now with both fisheries depletion and climate change? Yeah, I mean, let's just start where I am now in, in Long Island Sound, um, here down in southern New England. So it used to be a massive lobster fishery. Um, uh, it's completely disappeared. I mean, you can put traps in for a five-day soak, you know, three, 400 traps, Five days soak and you'll get two or three lobsters, right? This was this was the mainstay. Lobsters were the mainstay of Long Island Sound industry and gone. Uh, and you know, all the evidence is the water temps have gone up slowly in the sound over 30 years, and the lobsters have moved north. And that's why you saw a huge peak of uh, of lobster fishery in Maine now, because everybody's fleeing north, and that's just going to continue. And same with you know, whether it's the gill netters, the, sh the shrimpers, the scallopers, they're all, um, uh, we're seeing changing the waters constantly, more storms uh, coming in, hurricanes. I mean, the, the, I think the challenge is, is most folks in the fishing community still don't believe climate change is real. Like their reaction to um, scientists coming out and saying, you know, there are no fish, the fish are declining. 
we just think scientists are bad fishermen. Like they don't know where the fish are. <laughs> you come out once a month, you dip a net in, you're like, oh, fish stocks are down. And we're like, well, we know where the fish are hiding, right? That's our skill. But I think that's, that's slowly changing in the, in the fishing community. I got a call from uh, one of my dear friends up in um, Alaska, Dude Lankard, and he called me up and he said, this year the salmon didn't come home, right? And water temps uh, up in Cordova peaked at above, uh, just above 70 degrees. And they had never seen that before. And a terrible salmon run. Um, the fresh water from the glaciers are coming down into the bays, so the salmon aren't running into the bays. They get what they need outside. So, you know, climate change was supposed to be this slow lobster boil, 100-year problem. But as we all know, it's here and now. Yeah, but I think the politics hasn't caught up, right? Uh, especially in my community. Um, but our job isn't to argue with fishermen to convince them that climate change is real. What we're doing is trying to build a solution so that as it becomes more and more clear to more and more coastal communities, um, there is an answer there. It's not just sort of uh, uh, you're left with, a, with empty canneries, but there's something that can step in and be climate resilient and we can still still make a living. So you saw and experienced that wake-up call, and then you got into your own ocean farming operation, correct? Can you tell us a little bit about that and then founding your current organization, GreenWave? So when the cod stocks crashed and I came to this realization, what was there at that point, at that point is the answer was aquaculture. And that was supposed to be the answer to employing fishermen and we were going to feed the planet. And I was young. And so I went, went and started working on the fish farms. And that turned out to be a terrible, right? It was basically immediately aquaculture went and created sort of pig farms at sea, right? Using, you know, polluting local waterways, using wild fish to feed farmed fish. There was, there was, uh, they were using antibiotics. There was, you know, nets would break and release farmed fish into the wild. So I was actually very disillusioned by that. Now I look back to that moment of like moving from a hunter gatherer into a farmer on the ocean. I think the industry as a whole didn't ask the core question of like, what's unique about the ocean as an agricultural space. All they did was, okay, people eat salmon and tuna, let's grow salmon and tuna. But that's a wild palate, right? Instead, you gotta go to the ocean and say, what does it make sense to grow? And when you, you ask the ocean that, it says something very simple. Why don't you grow things that you don't have to feed and don't swim away? And as soon as you get there, there's a huge shift where there are thousands of different sea vegetables, seaweeds you can grow. There are 10,000 in the ocean, hundreds of kinds of shellfish. And the reason that matters, I think, from an economic perspective, from a small farm, small business perspective, is because we don't have to use feed, we don't have to use fertilizers, we don't have to use fresh water, that zero inputs radically lowers overhead, which makes it a viable business. So if you're growing fish, you got to have huge pens, you got you to constantly be feeding them, and we don't have to do that. You know, I say all you need to start a regenerative ocean farm is 20 acres and a boat and 20 to $50,000. Um, it's sort of like the nail salon model of the sea. It's like minimal capital costs. And that allows regular people like me to start our own, uh, our own farms. I think the benefits are one, the economic benefits, which allow for regular people to get into it. 
and uh, it doesn't require a lot of capital. That's one. The other is that all the crops we grow are regenerative. Now, I mean, not only is it zero input food, but also all our crops sequester carbon, nitrogen. I mean, you know, kelp, which we grow, is called the sequoia of the sea, right? These are the rainforests of the ocean. And oysters filter 50 gallons of water a day, pulling nitrogen out of the water column. Um, our farms also, because there's this whole ecosystem there, um, rebuild reefs, right? And there are artificial reefs where, where hundreds of different species come to hide and, and thrive and eat. The farms function as storm surge protectors. So in my area, it used to be oyster reefs that were so big you'd have to navigate your boats around them, right? A hundred years ago. That, that attenuated the, the, the um, storm surges that came through protected coastlines. Well, now our sort of green wave reefs uh, can play that function uh, as well. So I think it is, you know, it's not the answer to everything. I don't want to, it's not the, not the uh, panacea, but I think it's a piece of the puzzle of the bundle of solutions we need, need out there for climate change. Now, I'd say the other thing, like it can't, our solutions to climate change also can't just be small. Like it can't just be sort of farmer's market level. It's a huge problem. We need to be able to scale our solutions. But scale, like we're in a big debate now, I think, in the climate world of what does scale mean, right? And so I think there's one version where scale is a thousand acre farms out in the middle of the sea, sort of these banana plantations owned by one company, vertically integrated, benefits not going to the community, and, but having a big climate impact, right? I don't think that's how we need to scale. Instead, what scale looks like, what we call as green wave reefs, which is 25 small scale farms that's like 10 to 20 acres a piece in a region, a processing hub and a hatchery on land, which creates jobs for, for land lovers, folks who don't want to be the ocean. And then a ring of entrepreneurs doing the value added products. And then you replicate those reefs up and down the coast. And, you know, just with 20 farms, you can get up just for kelp, you can get to 2 million pounds every spring, right? That adds up really, really uh, quickly. So that's what scale looks like. And I think we need to hold that line as folks in the climate world that this, this you don't have to be a Google or, or an Amazon uh, corporation in order to do, to do this and have, a, have an impact. And let's talk on jobs for a minute. You know, a lot of the time there's this misconception that climate action or any action that will benefit the environment will come at the cost of jobs or a strong economy, which is quite on the contrary of the reality, right? Can you tell us some of those pretty impressive numbers of the jobs and the ripple effect that your line of work has on communities and job creation? Absolutely. I mean, like environmentalists have asked co-workers, steel workers, farmers, fishermen to essentially function from a space of altruism, right? Which is like, let's help the planet. And first of all, we're part of the planet <laughs> and uh, we, we deserve to make a living as an environmentalist. Anytime you impact a job with your policy, you have a moral responsibility to replace that job. That's the interesting thing I think about climate is that it's brought together this nexus of economic security and climate change. Like climate change is the biggest existential threat we faced in America ever. And I see that as an amazing opportunity to rally millions of people, not me, but like millions of people being rallied, right? With me just being what, uh, one of them to solve this problem. We can create a, um, uh, sort of an army 
of folks going to work to solve climate change in, in, in all, all walks of life. So in our industry, you know, World Bank did a study, and if you were to farm less than 5% of U.S. waters, an area equaling that, you could create 50 million jobs. Uh, if, if you want to not just create a dozen jobs here, a dozen jobs there, like the ocean is really a place we can do it. And that's why we're really pushing, you know, as this is a space, as a solution. I mean, more of the U.S.'s territory is underwater than above, but we don't look to the ocean as a place for solutions. I mean, generally, we look, it's beautiful, or we're building seawalls and fleeing our coasts. But instead, we should turn around and embrace the ocean as a place for solutions. You know, so I, I think there's real, real opportunity to, uh, to tackle it, to create jobs, and, and to really breathe life back into the ocean by putting people to work. Absolutely. And on that, can you tell us a little more about your organization, GreenWave, and its approach and the model that it uses? Yeah, so um, I had my farm for many years, uh, Thimble Island Ocean Farm. And uh, that's where I learned uh, to farm, farm, you know, oysters and uh, mussels and scallops and clams and, and seaweeds. About six years ago, I founded Green Wave. And Green Wave's role was, is to train the next generation of ocean farmers. I decided I didn't want to have like a big company. What I wanted to do was really, in, New, in back where I'm from in Newfoundland, I'd like fishermen to remain on the water, right? That was sort of, I, I'll die happy. Um, if, if, if we've been able to, to do that. So GreenWave is working to train 10,000 farmers in the next 10 years. That's everything from hatchery, taxa managers, to farmers. Uh, and our program, we've got a high touch and a low touch. Our high touch program, uh, we help permit, we help farmers sell their crops. We're out on their farms teaching them to farm. Like it's a very, uh, a whole bundle. And that's specifically targeted indigenous communities. Uh, who are out there fishing and fishermen directly affected by climate change. That's do there. But then we're also right now uh, just rolling out in the next um, month a uh, online platform. And that's a toolkit. So anybody that wants to start a farm can come. And there are the tools there for site planning. They can put in there like water depths, the bottom type. It'll spit out a farm design along with the budget, um, a gear list. And then there's tutorials of how to seed and, and things like that. And that's going to be key because we've got a waiting list of 7,000 people just in the U.S. for our program, people who want to start farms. There's massive interest and demand, and there's no way we can f train all those folks. So uh, pre-COVID, which was good, we started uh, moving our training online. And um, I think that because there are so many people interested, I, like I think our amb ambitious goals will be able to hit them. Wow. No, that's that's impressive. And to have that kind of a demand. And you guys are working with folks along all U.S. coastlines, correct? And also internationally? Yes. Yeah, so, um, you know, our main work is done in North America, in like Alaska, California, you know, New York, places like that. And then up in uh, British Columbia and, uh, in New and you know, in, in the Maritimes. Um, but we also have a new program uh, in New Zealand working with the uh, the Maori to develop uh, shellfish and seaweed farms. That's our first international program. And uh, we'll see where that goes from here. But mainly so far, we've been in, the, in North America. And you mentioning that working with indigenous communities. And can you tell us more about that of working with these cultures that have for a long time harvested and worked with these elements of the ocean? Absolutely. I mean, and there have been a couple of things we've learned working with indigenous communities. One is, um, you know, I'm from the East Coast and, and New England now, and 
we really think of so you know i really front load the blue economy creating jobs economic security like that's really where i you know farmer making a living right well we started working with indigenous folks they said well our biggest top priorities are food security because uh, we're being driven out of our villages we're remote and we need to find new ways to get food right so one and then two is restoration like farming to rebuild the ecosystem and then blue economy was way down the list and so we're, we're actually realizing that subsistence farming is going to be a key part of this the strategy and that's completely driven by the indigenous uh communities have have, have asked and, and of our collaborations and it turns out that um you know i did this book eat like a fish and i, I dug into what's the history of ocean farming because i'm just one moment in this and it turns out the first ocean farmers recorded were in the Pacific Northwest in, in BC. This is of the globe. Uh, and they, were, they, they built clam walls in order to cultivate clams. And so, um, you know, they're deep, deep roots in ocean farming. And then take something like seaweed. There's a long tradition of something called row on uh, kelp, where herring rows settle on kelp. Uh, they use the uh, kelp forest to spawn. Well, native communities went out with, and harvest that kelp. And bring it, and it was a delicacy. I actually had some last year. It was, it was amazing, a delicacy that for their communities, but also they sold it uh, worldwide. But now the herring and the kelp, because of climate change, are in different places. Like the herring can't find the kelp for us. Okay? Mm -hmm. So one of the things that we're doing with indigenous communities is setting up farms on herring roots so that they can, they have places to spawn, which will help rebuild the herring population, but also allow, allow indigenous communities to come in and harvest part of that to revive this, this tradition. So, you know, it's been fun to discover this hidden history. I mean, who knew that seaweeds were bar snacks in Ireland and Scotland forever, or that like fermented seaweeds was, were core to French cuisine and, and like Italians used it in their spaghetti sauce, or that McDonald's had a seaweed burger in the early 1990s. They didn't tell anybody it was a seaweed burger. It was called the McLean Sandwich. It was around for five years and became the official uh, burger of the American Basketball Association. Like there's this whole his, hidden history here about this weird thing called seaweeds um, that uh, it's been fun to fun to try to revive that. Yeah, no, that's kind of what I'm wondering as you're, you're talking about expanding the markets for this product, you know, and many might wonder, is there really that much demand for seaweed and this kelp? But even amongst the culinary world, there are some uses that many of us may be surprised to hear, but also can you share with us some of the other really exciting uses of seaweed? Sure. I mean, honestly, you know, <laughs> I eat at the gas station most nights. I, I'm not a seaweed eater, right? I grow it, right? My job is to be a climate farmer, not to, uh, you know, develop and enjoy a, a climate cuisine. I mean, our sh but our chefs are brilliant. So we work with Brooks Headley, for example, who was at a superior, superiority burger. And he took our kelp and made uh, barbecue kelp noodles with parsnips and breadcrumbs. Like completely desuchified, you get that heat of the barbecue sauce, the parsnips, the crunch of the breadcrumbs, and it's just delicious. It was like late night drunk food, right? You know, you just slip up. And that's what you want, right? That, 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 that's pitch perfect. But we're, we have a whole leaf strategy, and this is why I have huge hopes for the industry. First of all, Anybody who's doing zero input food, as the cost of water goes up, fertilizer feed, like the cost of inputs go up, uh, our zero input food is going to be more and more affordable. So the climate economy winds are at our back and it's going to push it to the center of the plate. Right? That's first of all. Second of all, it's like kelp. Uh, we have a whole leaf strategy 
where you know the, the say the 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 stipes are for pickled kelp right pickled kelps that's like a boutique thing next part of the blade we turn into um uh, kelp burgers with you know plant-based burgers with a company called akua and then do a kelp flour um and then next part of the plant uh, we use for fertilizer and compost now the amazing thing about kelp is that like all those nutrients that farmers need are running into the waterways well seaweed and shellfish can collect those and we can bring it back to land so it creates a, a sort of a nutrient loop between land and sea and a collaboration between land and sea farmers so we're using um, about a third of our crop to go to fertilizer and compost. And, you know, any land-based farmer knows that's been, been used for, you know, hundreds of years using seaweeds on crop and as well as a finisher for, um, uh, uh, you know, for cattle and, and sheep. In fact, in the early 1900s, there were 1,500 workers on the docks of San Diego producing fertilizer and feed for close to 900 farms in the Midwest. Like this is all something that was done before, but what happened is it wiped out the, the kelp forests, right? There was such demand. And so, um, you know, as farmers, uh, what's good is we can generate that without, uh, you know, clear cutting the kelp forest. Um, and then the last part of the plant goes to bioplastics, compostable bioplastics. And that, the amazing companies that are turning seaweeds into straws and packaging. And think of that, right? Like plastic pollution is an issue in the oceans. And here instead, I can grow an input that becomes a strong uh, and like a replacement for plastic. And plastic, of course, the, the packaging all uses natural gas and, and uh, you know, other, other fossil fuels. So we can actually be part of that solution. But the benefit here is we've got a use for every piece of that plant. There's zero waste. And is that bioplastic that it creates fully biodegradable? Yeah, 100%. That's what's key. Yeah, like a lot of the bioplastics aren't composed, you know, they're not biodegradable, but this is. That's so cool. I mean, what a really magical plant, you know? Yeah, right. I mean, listen, I, this is 98% of luck. You know, life is luck, maybe more than that, 99.5, and where you're the lottery of where you're born, right? Uh, and I never planned to grow seaweed. I mean, it was, I was getting laughed off the docks. It was like, I was lying, telling people I was growing underwater hemp, you know, the other fishermen. And it was, it's just like, I didn't want to grow plants. And it was just embarrassing. Like, I can't go to the same bars. I, I got no fish tales to tell. Like, you know, oh, I pulled up this big piece, piece of kelp today, right? And I, I get beat up, right? But it is, I really believe, you know, the crop of the, of the future. It's the future that makes sense. And as fishermen, I mean, our strategy has always been one of diversification. This isn't outside of our concept of what it is. It's like you're always looking for new fish and new species to catch. Well, here's the here's one of the new ones that we can do in the climate era. It's just now we need to cultivate it as opposed to uh, hunt it. For sure, and and such a great example in adapting, you know. And for fishermen, if they wanted to get started or start transitioning into ocean farming tomorrow, you know, but they've solely been a commercial fisherman. What advice and tips do you have for them as far as what they're looking at for upfront costs, needed materials, and how that works with not land ownership, but utilizing that ocean space to get their own operations started? So if you're a fisherman, the first thing you want to do is reach out to your sea grant and find out if there's leases available. Um, generally, what happens is you either lease from the town 
the state or the federal government. I stick to town and state leases. They're very affordable. It's like $25 to $50, a, depending on, on where per acre per year. That's, that's, that's here in Southern New England. Um, and then just make sure you start small. Like come to the GreenWave site, you'll get an intro of like what to expect and do you wanna do this? And then as you permit, and the Sea Grant will help you permit, and we have some permitting language you could use on the site, just start small. Start with a couple lines in the water. Don't spend more than five, 600 bucks. Um, don't buy a big boat. You just don't need all that stuff. See what the ocean is gonna let you grow. See how many pounds per foot you get, right? And then build your business model around that. Once you get that information, you can scale quickly. Then you can really jump. And the scale you're looking, depending on where you are, uh, and the depths, twenty to fifty thousand dollars, you know, plus a boat, plus your lease. And does GreenWave do any type of environmental or ecosystem analysis in the different regions that you work in? to see what species will grow best there and what will not be invasive? Yeah, um, we, only do, we only work with native species, right, for the region. And what we do is we do a landscape analysis before we get, so we only go to where we're asked in. So we're asked in and what we do, we do the landscape analysis and that looks like, looks at the ecology, the leasing structures, the latent infrastructure, the skill sets, the, the barriers to market. And then we're like, oh, okay, this is viable. Let's move forward and build a program around it. Or we'll look at the landscape analysis and be like, this isn't ready yet, right? There needs to be more pieces, needs to be more knowledge about these species or are they viable to grow, things like that. So landscape analysis has been absolutely key for setting regions up for success. For sure. No, it's such an important part of that work. And can you leave us with any final calls to action? We can start with policymakers things that you want them to keep in mind as they're shaping policy that directly affects regenerative ocean farming as it develops? Sure. Um, we worked on something called the Blue New Deal, which uh, was picked up and did with Dr. Ayana Johnson, like Greenwave and, and Dr. Johnson. And, and that, that's, I think that's really important. It's looking at the ocean as a place of solutions, um, uh, uh, building living waterfronts, which aren't just tourist destinations, but are places where we can actually process and, and, and uh, 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 really do real work on. Um, it, it includes uh, reimagining the marine park, right? So marine parks can't just be about conservation. Let's make the climate zone marine parks of the future a place where you're doing reforestation, farmers, where you don't harvest, you're doing farming, um, you're, you have ecotourism and artisanal fishery, and that's a 2,000 acre zone that I think will breathe life back into the oceans. The other thing is, I think policymakers, it's now time to really think what regenerative ocean farming is going to look like and who's going to benefit. We have major corporations coming in, uh, folks like Shell Oil, Trident, all these people who see all the advantages that we're talking about. And that the opportunities of the ocean are now coming into lease. And so we'd really like to see some legislation that, for example, the grounds you lease, you have to be locally, you have to be in-state, probably limits on lease ownership. They have to be big enough so people can make a you know, great living uh, and there could be great collaboration around it. Um, but I think there's a chance, like the exciting thing from a policy perspective is that the, this industry is just beginning. It's a blank slate. We can take all the lessons from land-based ag all those mistakes that were made and let's solve them on the ocean. Like let's do food, right? We don't have to unravel the bad things. Let's do it um, correctly out of the, out of the gate. So on the policy front, I think um, there's a, there's a lot to do and God knows we need a lot of help. 
Absolutely. No, I, I appreciate you saying that. And and we always see that, right? With anything that holds economic promise, it runs the risk of larger entities taking over and cutting communities and the locally managed operations out of it. And any final calls to action you have for folks in other sectors and other fields of work in regards to adapting as we move forward in the changing climate, you know, not just for building resiliency, but also finding solutions and moving forward in a better way. I think science really needs to shift its urgency. It needs to get COVID style, right? Which is like science has to have a direct purpose right now to solve these issues. And your, your, your resources and all your skill needs to zone in on staying ahead of this climate curve, like figure out what crops need to be grown now when, when, when uh, uh, water's scarce or water temperature, you know, water scarce on land or water temperatures go up uh, uh, in the ocean. Like we need a World War II level mobilization by the scientific community to solve this. So ask yourself, is my research I'm doing today going to solve a problem within the next two years? And is it going to be a climate-centered problem? Is it going to be an economic problem that solved like these core things? It can't be about like the sexual reproduction cycle of the dung beetle. Do that if we save the planet, right? <laughs> the other thing is I'd say to folks who are thinking about the climate space in general, don't look for that unicorn, that like one solution. Look for bundles of solutions. Like it's going to take thousands of solutions bundled together the appetite to let them fail, let them cross-pollinate. This is such a complex set of problems that I feel like the Silicon Valley unicorn framework really isn't gonna work. So just look for diverse solutions and bring them together and support them all. Thank you so much to Bren Smith for sharing your story and insight with us today. You can follow Greenwave's work on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at GreenwaveORG. For curious listeners or fishermen looking to transition into ocean farming, check out their site, greenwave.org. There's really great information on getting started or just learning more about regenerative ocean farming. There's really cool videos and toolkits and lots of other resources. You can also check out Bren's book, Eat Like a Fish, My Adventures Farming the Ocean to Fight Climate Change, at the link in this episode's description. Thank you all for listening. Be sure to subscribe for more stories and share these episodes with others to hear inspiring action to help you find your role in a thriving planet. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Stories for Action and Twitter at Stories Number 4 Action. Learn about all of our work at storiesforaction.org. You can support our work with a tax-deductible donation through our site, and for the month of December, we're sending you one 8x10 scenic photo print taken by yours truly for every $60 you contribute. Your gift will allow us to fulfill our mission of producing and curating media content that uses the power of storytelling to share human connection and advance a thriving planet for all.